happy Friday. I don't know what day it is for you. It's Tuesday for us. We are pre-recording this episode of Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. And it's the holidays, ladies and gentlemen. We don't know exactly which one. We don't know what you're celebrating. We are celebrating the end of the work year, the end of the travel year. And as we come to the end of 2016, we're going to look forward to 2017. So that's what today's podcast is going to be all about. I'm here with Meredith Carey, who's a digital editor for Traveler and a podcast producer, and Catherine LeGrave, who's a senior digital editor for us, Mark Elwood, who's a podcast producer and a contributing editor, and Sebastian Modak, who's a digital editor for us. Hi, everybody. How are you guys feeling? Great. Great. So Excellent. Party, holiday party last night. Everybody <laughs> is dragging just a little bit. But nothing will inspire us more than talking about where we want to travel. Exactly. This is the most exciting podcast of the year, right? So let's start with the obvious choice for this, I think, post-election, which is Canada. Meredith, you've been looking into this a little bit. Where should people be thinking of going in Canada? And why now? Right. So last year, we told everyone to go to the American National Parks. It's the 100th anniversary. And we covered the parks a ton. Brad yes, has been extensively. to a Went lot to this year. <laughs> climbed, <laughs> walked, flew. Um, and Canada is actually celebrating a birthday of its own. It's their 150th birthday. And they are also having free national parks all year, 59 of them all over the country. Um, very, very large country. So you have lots of options there, and if you go and sign up for a Discovery Pass online, you get all of the access to all the parks for free. So if you're just bopping in and you're driving into Canada for a day or go for a long time, you've got lots of options. Why to would you from. go for just a day? Why would you go for just a day? It's I, I have to say that Montreal is one of my favorite cities in the world. I think Montreal is unfairly overlooked as a kind of cool fusion of the Scottish people who made up a big part of Canada's Anglophone settlers and the francophones now and i just think montreal has a has that slight kind of grittiness but i love the buildings i love the nightlife i think it's a really i think it's unfairly overshadowed by toronto which is lovely but is just a bit better at marketing itself and we've talked about earlier this year we put up a story online which is basically that in the time that you could book a reservation stand in line for a restaurant in New York that is probably overhyped. You could take a one hour flight to Montreal and get an actual seat at a restaurant and eat a really your, good restaurant. Eat your like delicious food that's probably better than what you would be getting standing in line for an hour yeah. and a half in New York and then come back. And yeah. also, what about poutine? I must admit, poutine. Exactly. Late night, you know? Oh, but, great. But poutine outside Canada. Explain, explain poutine. Poutine is what French fries will be when they grow up. It's sort of like it's the next stage in evolution. French fries, French fries are French fries are the Neanderthals or the chimpanzees, and poutine is us. It is it is like French fries evolved, sort of slathered in delicious everything bad for you. I feel like it's French fried French fries, kind of <laughs> spiritually, but it's just slathered in like sauce and and oh, I just I can just taste it now. I just I've always found whenever I've had poutine outside Canada, it feels like a gourmet dish. Sort of people are making a point like. Meh. And it is supposed to be a kind of late night hangover, but hangover preventer, but something delicious <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. And I also, going back to the National Parks point, and because you, I know you like the great outdoors Ooh. so much, Mark, yeah. there's... He couldn't even let us talk about it, could he? He had to take it right, down, right back to I the I get city. nervous when plants aren't in pots where they belong. <laughs> well, uh, you'll love 
the fact that next year, the longest network of trails, bike trails, walking trails, will be complete and will be in Canada. It's the Great Trail, also known as the Trans-Canada Trail. It's 14,864 miles of connected paths for biking, for walking, for horseback riding. It includes water paths, which are for kayaking, ski paths. So basically, you can traverse the whole continent without you know getting in a car so mark your first assignment in 2017 <laughs> is going to be to traverse the transnational know, i did path. once have an editor who thought because i am so averse to somewhere that there aren't taxis who thought it would be hilarious to send me for three months incessantly to the most rugged wildernessy places to see how i coped and i always think as journalists, there are places that we're naturally drawn to, but actually that assignment turned into some of my most favorite experiences ever because when you are put out of your comfort zone, you end up discovering unexpected things. And when I was sent to Wyoming, which is, as I hope we have some listeners in Wyoming, you know, Wyoming is a wide open place, but I ended up interviewing all the cowboy poets who are essentially country and western singers without the music who stand kind of rhyming, almost rapping by the campfire. And it was one of the most privileged experiences I've ever had. I wish it had been a bit more urban, but I'm still good. <laughs> you want, you want the, the Times Square naked cowboy poet? <laughs> I would like Times Square, but those cowboy poets. <laughs> So Canada and uh, everybody, you can join Mark in Canada next year. I also know that we are recommending, I thought this one was kind of interesting, that we're recommending that people take some trips in the United States again, although not to the national parks, although national parks, always good to They're go still to. There. Still, still there. Still there. <laughs> not going anywhere. And plenty of them to see. But we are advising people to go to a couple of other places. Do you guys want to talk about some of the reasons why now is a good time to go to, for example, Indianapolis? Well, I think besides the concrete reasons, there's this kind of romantic notion of maybe it's time to, you know, get reconnected with the rest of the country outside of our little New York bubble and to kind of reach across the aisle to people who are have different ideas and just, you know, see the positive side of the diversity of this country in, in all its glory. And part of that is like, you know, Go on a tour of swing states, you know, see what it's like. But it's also it. interesting. I think it's I think it's really interesting to go to cities that are not necessarily on the on the instant attention map. Places like Pittsburgh or Indianapolis mm. or Minneapolis, because I've had some of my favorite trips in America to cities that are sort of easy to overlook. So you're going to eavesdrop on how people there live yeah. rather than to check off the tourist sites that you know are there. Paul was on the podcast earlier this year. I think it was when we were doing our Where to Go this summer packaging. He, was, he claims that Indianapolis is the most interesting up-and-coming food city in the United States. They also have a 21C hotel. These 20, The 21C hotels are great for these sort of smaller markets. They exist. And it's just opening or is so you know, will open this yeah. This is the whole point. 21C hotels are like heat-seeking for cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wherever they go, even if you don't realize it's somewhere you want to go, it's probably kind of cool to go there. I stayed in the one in Durham uh, this year, and it was a great building with great food and kind of drinking around it. And I realized they're essentially doing the, the Condé Nast Traveler style job of like, finding great places. It's almost like they give it a stamp of approval and you're like, oh, if they think it's cool, there must be something there worth they, checking out. They yeah. are, as just as French fries want to be poutine when they grow up, <laughs> 21C hotels are what the Ace Hotel would like to be when it grows up. Mm. Yeah. I think they're a little bit more cutting edge. I love my the Aces. They, they take bigger risks too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Definitely. And that's, that's huge. And you mentioned Minneapolis. I mean, I went to school in Minneapolis. 
Minneapolis, and I've been saying how cool it is for a long time. But Sebastian, you wrote an article this year about Prince's Paisley Park becoming yeah. a museum, which mm -hmm. is going to be a huge attraction, right? Not only for people that live in the city that want to go and see inside his house, but also for Prince fans around the world. And we, have a, we have another piece coming up that kind of goes in depth about what's happening inside it. And uh, without any spoilers, it's pretty awesome. It's definitely worth a visit. And the Walker, I mean, a friend of mine runs the Walker Art Center in, in Minneapolis, and that is having an enormous expansion, which debuts in the summer. That it, They've essentially doubled their size. They're creating mm -hmm. this huge new sculpture garden. It's easy to overlook. Minneapolis is essentially, the, culturally, one of the most successful and thriving cities in America with an incredible theater scene, which is kind of like a farm team for Broadway, the way that Chicago is. But it also has all these artist-run spaces because as someone once said to me, we have a terrible winter for six months and we stay home and create. And then we have six months to run around and talk to everybody. So it's the perfect sort of Petri dish to create culture. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, they have the third largest fringe festival in the nation. Ooh. Fun fact. I didn't know that, Mary. Yeah. I didn't know that either. They have an amazing it's sculpture park just outside of the city that I discovered on my recent trip there called in Franconia. And they work throughout the year there, you know, and they're in the shed working on these sculptures throughout the winter, and then they put it up in the summer, and people come out and check it out, and it's constantly rotating. Uh, so yeah, I think you're right. That and it's Minnesota passed an interesting, an interesting law in 2008, I believe, a long-term tax plan, which increased certain tax brackets or certain taxes to pay for culture and environmental protection. So Minnesota has a, puts its money where its mouth is in terms of looking after its natural assets and then creating new ones. And that bodes very well for what else Minneapolis will have in the next sort of 10 years. I do think, um, too, that the notion that it's a good opportunity, a good time to kind of get out there and get to know some of these places that are less well known. And I know it's not a part of our official list, but thinking about the Rust Belt, Mark, you're always an advocate of Pittsburgh. I love Pittsburgh. I think that, but and I do think that it's not just Pittsburgh itself, but going around that area. And I was just in Detroit this year, and while I don't think Detroit is quite you know, at that level, I do think Detroit is on its way to being there. You can start to see some of the energy. There are some new hotels there. There are a lot of new restaurants and mm -hmm. wine bars and places that are interesting to eat, as well as the traditional stuff, which I think is also worth getting acquainted with. So this is a good time for that. that. And it's, it is, I mean, I will say, as an, a long-time immigrant to America, one of my greatest pleasures has been exploring America. It is, we love the world, but America is one of those crazy countries that if you never left, you would still not get everything done in a lifetime. It's enormous and diverse. And making a checklist of, say, three states or three cities you want to visit next year because you just want, want to explore America is a great thing, and you'll be really surprised. I would always suggest to people, especially if you're doing domestic trips, one of the best ways, and it's actually what I do even as a journalist, is to book hotels and flights together. It's a very European thing. I've talked about it before, but you'll find that often you'll effectively get a hotel almost free if you book the hotel and flight up front because of how those packages are structured. So for domestic getaways, if you're not sure if you have the budget for it, check the hotel and flight packages together and you might end up being able to sneak one in. The other thing I would say, not to be on the national parks front, but it's been a big year for Westworld. 
there are a lot of Westworld fans out there. Mm-hmm. I found this interesting as somebody who spent a lot of time in national parks last year there. I've been watching the show and I've been thinking I knew where they were filming and I, ha- I actually don't, which suggests that there are a lot of really interesting places to go and see some of those filming locations. We have actually have a piece on the site if you look for Westworld filming locations that you can actually visit on our site. There, we have a list of things and they're not the conventional places. There's some really interesting new places that they're working in. So I thought that was kind of cool too. Moving off the domestic front, let's give people a little a little something to look forward to in the cold weather. What about if we think about the Caribbean? What are you guys thinking of for next year? Where are we recommending people go? So last year on our list, we had Cuba. It was just starting out. Flights were just starting to head there from the U.S. And, you know, sanctions were being lifted and more Americans were able to go. This year, we're saying Cuba again, but we're saying skip Havana and go outside and like really explore the rest of Cuba versus you know the usual drop into Havana, kind of putts around for a little bit and then head back to Miami. This is also, I'm right now in the middle of planning a trip to Cuba in, the, in February, and one of the things that I think we're gonna be covering a lot is what you just said, Meredith, at all levels, which is getting away from the conventional wisdom and understanding about Cuba. As travel opens up more, you can take direct flights now Mm -hmm. from the New York airports. And that's going to mean people are going to have to step outside the ways that they've been going. The people-to-people programs are still very popular, but you sort of are removing some of those barriers and getting people out into Cuba itself. And as Mark will say, I'm sure, Europeans have been doing this for decades and decades, and it's not that scary or weird to them. But it is an interesting set of problems that you have to solve as a traveler that are not solvable in the same ways that they are in other places. So it's something we're going to be covering a lot and taking a look at to try to help people understand if you do want to go outside, how should you get to those places? Can you rent a car? What does that look like? How do you hook up with a fixer and all of those sort of issues? When Airbnb has really opened up in Cuba, they have kind of solved for now the you know, issue of not having enough hotels to house all of the Americans that are wanting to head in. So that is an other option if you feel like you're not going to go on a designated trip. Or you could rent a $140,000 yacht on Salo. <laughs> It'll take you right to <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Yeah, two weeks. Just two weeks. Charging it to the company. But how many people, whenever I read those numbers, the one question is, between how many of you could you rent that? Are there 30 of you and it's your way of, it's your way of having a slightly souped up vacation or is that a yacht for four people? I'll tell you. Eight guests. Eight guests. Eight guests. So that is Just quite a pricey. That, it's nothing, you know? Just so if you're easy, looking cool. for something cheaper, obviously we have a, a service piece on our website about how to fly to Cuba. So kind of what you were saying, um, there are about 19 to 20 daily flights to Havana, but you know, 18 to 25 on any given day to these other cities. So if you want to figure out what other cities you can go to, just go to the piece. It's called How to Fly to Cuba Right Now and say, okay, I'm flying from Fort Lauderdale. And it lists all of the places that you can fly to. And so that's Cuba a good is service. huge. I mean, the yeah. thing that's easy, easy to forget is as an island, it's one of the largest land masses in the Caribbean. So you've got real diversity. We are so focused on Havana, both historically and news-wise. But I mean, there's a lot there. I think JetBlue is flying to Santa Clara, an American is flying to Cienfuegos, and yeah, the, as Catherine said, they all are on that lovely piece mm-hmm. on the website. What do you guys think? Is this the year that Cuba kind of like hits that peak that like kind of really turns into something, or do you think we're still a few years away from that? I think we're still a few years away. I, I talked agree. about this just because 
Cuba is still off limits to a lot of Americans just because of the 12 reasons that you have to have to go. You know, we talked about this on an earlier podcast. Maybe Airbnb will open that up to some people. But I think it's largely off limits to people. Because um, Airbnb, just before you leave that point, Airbnb sure. counts as a people-to-people program if you do it. Well, now they've added trips, right? Right. So it's if you go and you do an Airbnb trip with them, then your people-to-people exchange is kind of taken care of through a familiar platform, yeah. in this case, Airbnb. Right. But I think it is worth noting that it does seem quite baffling, I think, at the moment, Cuba. There's a big barrier to entry, but it is something we're going to be watching, exactly as Brad said, because you know, we will keep tracking all those changes because there are going to be changes. Lots of things are going to happen. It's the dam. Someone has just pulled their thumb out of the tiny hole in the dam and it's buckling a little bit and a couple of hotels have leaked through. But soon enough, there'll be a flood. Which is why maybe now's the year to go. Yeah. 2017 is the year to go for that very reason, you know, before there's Starbucks on every corner. It's going to go before it gets too commercialized. Like I said about the flights, doing that math, there are only 45... To 50 daily flights. They're allowed 110 with the pact, which is, you know, half of what they're allowed. So it'll be interesting to watch and see if the flight numbers go up, if the cruises, you know, continue to, to go up. It's so close to Key West. I mean, I've stood at the southernmost point of Key West <laughs> and thought, Cuba is right there. I want to take like a hydrofoil from Key West for the day. That's what I want to do. I mean, that could happen, right? Eventually. Eventually. It's 90 miles, right? Yeah. It's not, yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's literally sort of, you squint. If I were wearing my glasses, I could probably see it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But on the other end of the spectrum, so to speak, but still in that same area, we were talking last week about Zika, one of the big travel stories of the year, and one of the places that you can go to get a Zika-free vacation and still hit the beach and kind of do a really, really sort of upscale vacation is Bermuda. I know this is one of your favorite places, Mark. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, I, that sounds terrible because it just sounds like a British person trying to reclaim the empire. <laughs> it, it was thrilling to go to Bermuda and breeze through immigration with my British passport because I have a green card and a British passport. So it is a British overseas territory. So I am essentially coming to a country where I belong. So there was no wait. That isn't the only reason I loved it. What I love about Bermuda, and I think gets very overlooked, is it is incredibly close to America. Culturally and psychologically it feels like it should be near the Azores. It should be right in the middle of the Atlantic. It's not. It's next to South Carolina. It's two. It's a two-hour flight from New York City. Oh, I mean, it was better. I mean, it's two crazy. hours scheduled. I mean, it's, it's an hour and a bit in the air. Right. For anyone on the eastern seaboard in Atlanta, in South Carolina, those connections are so easy and you are getting a British experience. It's not Engl- it's not British people, but it's a very anglicized experience with quite old-fashioned. It's quite formal. When you wear your Bermuda shorts, you wear them with long socks because that's the equivalent of being properly dressed. If you don't wear the long socks, it's a bit like turning up for a meeting in ripped jeans. It's okay, but people perceive it as perhaps disrespectful. So it is a little kind of retro British, but I love, uh, the Hamilton Princess was redone with a massive, massive overhaul this year. 100 million. I mean, I I thought it was, I mean like crazy budgets. That's a great base. Bermuda is not cheap when you get there yeah. because That's everything's what I was imported. Ask. I've heard it is an expensive trip. So try and I would very much eat a very big breakfast, <laughs> buy some rum at duty free, and let that keep you through the day, and then have a nice dinner. That would just be my cheapy way of doing Bermuda. Yeah, Laura went earlier this year and she was talking about this and said it's basically Manhattan prices. If you want to have happy hour, for example, it's it's like happy hour in Manhattan. Speaking of the Azores. So, Seb Mo, 
you are recommending that people go and visit the Azores this year. Well, Tell I was why. I was more advocating for Portugal as a whole, including the Azores. So starting with the mainland, I think there's a ton of reasons to go. I think you know, Portugal's the kind of place that right now could be on our list of where to go next year every year because it's just there's more and more reasons to go. And why is that? What's going on? So there? it's, you know, it goes back to I mean 2008 Portugal got hit hard by the crash. Like really hard, like 40% youth unemployment and just, you know, factories shutting down, businesses shutting down. It's like worse than Spain, but not as bad as yeah, Greece, but basically. Yeah, because it's part of the pigs, isn't it? It's Portugal, <laughs> Ireland, Greece, and Spain. Yeah. yeah. But the way, the way that they've rebounded from it has been just remarkable. And a lot of that has to do with some very, you know, forward-thinking city planning ideas, encouraging the arts, encouraging artists to move in, to sort of take over these abandoned warehouses and turn them into museums or gallery spaces. Portugal's, you know, known for being very progressive socially in a lot of ways, and they, you know, it's why? Fam- I don't know, but famously, drugs are legal. And which drugs? All drugs. All the drugs. All the drugs. <laughs> um, you can see some people are thinking, definitely Portugal next year. <laughs> Portugal. I'm not. I'm not. Put, I'm not. You if know, you're bored with Colorado, um, we didn't even tell. That's a reason to go to Colorado or what, whatever new state. Anyway. But yeah, so they've just you know they've kind of introduced a lot of tax breaks for people who are trying to do renovations to these old commercial buildings. Um, I thought you were going to say tax breaks for drug dealers. For drug dealers, <laughs> a lot of uh, like a overly progressive sponsored community-oriented design projects and grants for small businesses to start up. So there's just been a lot of influx of kind of this whole new creative industry, and it's reflected in the architecture of the buildings, in the way that you know plazas around Lisbon have been completely renovated because you know the city would throw a competition among architects, and the winner got to design all 31 plazas in the city. You know, wow. things like that. And then just from a logistical standpoint, there was the news earlier this year of a kind of burgeoning partnership between TAP Portugal and JetBlue. So not only can you fly with TAP Portugal daily from New York to Lisbon with a free stopover in Porto if you want, but now you can also combine that with domestic flights through JetBlue. So you can fly from wherever you are, Chicago, to New York on JetBlue and then connect to TAP Portugal as part of a code share flight. So this kind of momentum is just going to keep on coming, which is why I say that this is kind of a place that I think is just going to become more and more attractive for visitors in the years to come. And the TAP prices are surprisingly impressive. There's a big travel fair which happens in in early December called ILTM in Cannes. And a friend of mine told me last night, she said, you know, I looked at flying direct from New York. There were no flights. I looked at flying direct on the indirect on the US carriers in economy, super expensive. I looked at flying on TAP via Lisbon with a permission to stop over. And she said, and business class one way and economy the other way was cheaper than any economy option on an indirect US-based mm-hmm. carrier. Mm-hmm. So TAP is one of those airlines that if you don't search for it, you should if you want to get to Europe. Yeah. And there's also Azores Airlines, which those flights are going to be up 42% in 2017 from 2016. So they're going to have, I think it's 970 or 970. You don't mean up in price, you mean up in volume. Up in volume, sorry, yes. So they're going to fly, I think, 972 total flights. Um, so they're going to be connecting the Azores you know, with Porto, with Lisbon, with Barcelona, that connect to other cities in the U.S., you know, like I think there was a ticket 
that included a stopover in the Azores for 500 something. That and I think it's only yeah. like a four hour flight or something from New York to the Azores, yeah. right? It's Again, like it's, it's just, right in the middle yeah, of the it's Atlantic. Just go straight into the Atlantic and stop halfway, you know? <laughs> it's you kind of there. like the Iceland of yeah. that, well, that region. And with I, the think, stopovers. I think it's also worth mentioning, speaking of Iceland and, you know, Europe as a whole, that with the sort of growing concerns about security, not that that should be a reason not to go to places like Paris, you know, we've written about this before, or Germany, like, go, you should go, you know. Um, but I do think concerned travelers are looking for alternatives in Europe for places that are less targets for terrorism or other, you know, forms of instability. And like, so places like Portugal are suddenly much more popular or, you know, same reason why suddenly Ireland or, you know, Scotland, which is also on our list, is, is are more popular for people trying to go to Europe, but might have concerns about going or, to Paris. I mean, I'm curious, like the Azores, are the Azores basically like the Balearics, but, you know, not yet developed without the dance club. So take it away, Mark. Tell us about the Azores. The, obviously, the Azores are not somewhere that I'm naturally drawn to because it is a very outdoorsy destination. It's very much, you know, adventure hiking. It's an adventure destination. Yeah. It's an incredible one. I've heard it's beautiful, though. There's, like, huge variety of landscape within a small Again, state. Yeah, so I it's have, nine islands, and they're all kind of... Waterfalls, have you heard of them? I have the equivalent of colorblindness when it comes to sort of assessing countrified scenes. I'm sure they're beautiful. But, um, yeah, it's an archipelago. I mean, it's a volcanic archipelago. Nine islands, but really light, active volcanoes. So if you... It's that Hawaii... It's basically... I think of it as a little bit like Hawaii, but Atlantic more exotic. Hawaii. Yeah, but more exotic because you're getting that Portuguese food and the Portuguese culture rather than... Obviously, Hawaii has some indigenous culture, but it's very much part of America. The Azores is... Is Europe? It's just Europe, really close to us, and like nine hundred miles away from Europe. Yeah, so <laughs> so it's Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Scotland, Catherine. Yes. Were we? Oh, we were. I guess <laughs> you were. <laughs> You were just in Scotland. I was in Scotland this year for about nine days, first time in Scotland, and I loved it. I did sort of, sorry, Mark, more of an adventure trip. I just kind of, kind of skipped the cities. Um, and, you know, one of the big questions I got when going to Scotland was always about Outlander, which is kind of funny, and I think it has helped drive tourism. And also Brexit, you know, kind of what Sebastian was talking about. London is such a big city, and people are kind of trying to get away from sort of those first-tier destinations. And I think Scotland is emerging as a first-tier destination, but it's maybe not the first place people think of in the United Kingdom. What was your most memorable Scottish thing? What did you do in <laughs> Scotland that sort of summed it up for you? Was it the time travel? Was that what did it? Yeah, walk, walking <laughs> walk between the, the stones. stones. Is that it? Um, the most Scottish thing. Oh boy. Everyone talks about that. Didn't you almost hit a sheep while you were driving or something? There were a lot of sheep. <laughs> when, you a lot of when you say wild, wild Scotland, so where exactly did you right, go? Right, so I was in Orkney. So Mark's saying, wow, because that, that is really remote. Um, Mark so is making a TV face on radio. <laughs> so Sorry, I'm looking. I'm so impressed. I've never been to, my mother's Scottish, but I've never been to Orkney. Yeah, Orkney's kind of out there. So the northeastern part of Scotland, it's another archipelago sort of of these wild islands that have the Scandinavian history. You know, they were settled by the Vikings. So I did that, and I did the Highlands, and I did some of the islands on the West Coast. Loch Lomond, the biggest lake in Scotland. So it was really out and about adventuring. So Laura, again, she's like the absentee podcaster today. She was also there, and she did the opposite of yours. And you guys both came back and said everybody should be going to this place. Yeah, she, she did, did. She did the city. She did Edinburgh and she did Glasgow. 
you were out in the countryside and but up remember in the, the bonus the reason i would bring that together i was also just back in scotland and i spent a lot of my childhood going there the pound is very weak against the dollar at the moment so the uk right. is a great destination if you want to explore somewhere that is the UK but will feel a little bit more foreign, Scotland is – remember, Scotland has its own laws. Scotland has three verdicts that they can have at a trial, guilty, innocent, and not proven, which means double jeopardy doesn't apply. Its educational system is completely different from England and has Wales. It has its own banknotes too. It has, yeah, and there have been recent incidences where – Tallow, is this what you're talking about? No, because the, the new five-pound note in Britain is plastic, so you can't rip it and you know it will go through the laundry A-OK. But – of course, there are Scottish versions, and there have been instances of English stores not accepting the Scottish notes because they didn't know they were legal. And yet you go to an ATM and you get out these crazy pound notes that you think, oh, it's Bank of England, but but it's Scottish. Yeah. So everything, it's like going to Toronto from New York. It's sort of New York through a nice looking glass. Yeah. And Delta has a new flight that they actually launched in 2016 direct to Edinburgh. From NYC. Um, and there's a new driving route, which is supposed to be the most scenic road trip in the world called the North Coast 500, which I actually did. It's coming did back it? to me now. Yeah, I didn't do all of it because <laughs> it's 516 miles. It starts in Inverness and it goes around through the highlands. But that is is quite the road trip how for much, the adventurers. How much Gaelic did you come across? A lot. What is what? Gaelic? The language? Yeah. Oh, ga- uh, no, Gaelic is Irish. Is Gaelic Irish. is Scottish. Oh, okay. Yeah. You learn something new every day, Brad. Yeah, you do. But They're I found that if I spoke quickly, sometimes they couldn't understand me. So it was sort of... <laughs> it was good for No, but I think it's what's interesting. And I, that's another reason that I think Scotland can be such a lovely, kind of slightly befuddling experience, but in the safest possible way. My mother is from the Outer Hebrides, which is the Western Islands. There, their first language is Gaelic. My grandparents spoke Gaelic as their first language and learnt English. Today, there's been a real resurgence of it in a, in sort of some way, kind of local pride kind of way. And up in the Western Isles and in Inverness, you'll see most of the signs will be in Gaelic and maybe in English, sort of to prove a point. But it's delicious because everyone does speak English. They'd just rather not. <laughs> I feel like the other thing that I've both seen proven, at least in Scottish people I know, and also heard, I had a friend who assisted Albert Watson for a while, and they used to spend a lot of time in Scotland. He said it was the funniest place he'd ever been. I feel like the sense of humor is just over the top. It's just the funniest place on earth, the funniest people on earth. I think they're very dry. Yeah, I mean, very dry. Yeah, my, my which humor you, which went is over your, well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those are your people. Catherine, you have a lot of Scottish heritage, I think, maybe. I no? don't have any, no. <laughs> Maybe way back when, and you maybe. just sort of like bring it out. So not to put you guys on the spot again, but everybody thinks of Greece as the island destination, but we are recommending that people go to Athens this year. Is Athens back? Are we ready for that? I think so. I mean, I think we talked about the economic crisis earlier, which has been bad for Greece's economy, but in a way good for tourism, right? You have hotels that are much more affordable. The reason that I like Athens for 2017 is because it's kind of emerging as a modern arts destination, right? So for the first time, Documenta is going to be co-hosted in two cities. So Documenta is a huge art fair that happens every five years in Germany, and they decided this year to have it also in Athens, which is kind of a significant statement um, that the Germans are making about the sort of partnership with Greece. And not only that, there's a 623 million Stavros Niarchos Cultural Center. So that is now on the biggest park in Athens. Um, it's going to, or it does, excuse me, house the National Opera and the National Library of Greece. So this is a huge cultural complex in Athens. It's, it's sort of 
no longer a stopover destination um, on the way to the islands. I think a lot of people, you know, they come, they see the Acropolis, and that's it. But there's not a real sense of Athens as a place, a destination of itself. And I think that'll change in 2017. I would also add, Dacus Ioannou is one of the most important contemporary art collectors in the world. And he's Greek Cypriot, and his foundation is in Athens. And he's helped draw the visual arts, especially like Documenta, to Athens. And Hydra, which is the, one of the islands really close to Athens that you can actually day trip to, is an invitation to Pauline Carpides' shindig in Hydra every summer. If you are an artist, is an Academy Award. But people will also want to go to Hydra because Leonard Cohen had a home there and oh, there are no sure. motors. So it's ah. all donkeys and on foot. So also a good time to go. Also a good if time to go. If you were in go. mourning for Leonard Cohen, as many of us are. Yes. Although we're saying Athens, but it's a short, I think it's, but it's like a, two and a half hours it's or a something. Day trip. Of all the yeah. islands, Hydra is really Athens' backyard rather than, oh, I have to go for the night. You could go for the day very easily. Yeah, and it sounds like that's a way to get a great urban experience, a sort of up-and-coming urban experience, very culturally rich. I love that Athens is reclaiming the art scene. Like mm-hmm. it's like <laughs> That is where a lot of Western art began, so it's great that they're sort of bringing it back. But you could also get that completely off-the-grid experience in Hydra. I stayed at uh, a couple of design hotels in Athens recently, and I was astonished at how groovy they were, how convenient they were, and how astonishingly cheap they were, even in peak season. For 100 euros a night, Sure, it was a small-ish room, but it was a great, cool hotel in a great neighborhood. I loved the Periscope. There are some really, really good smaller hotels in Athens. The big ones and the grand ones are fantastic, but a bit like Paris, the smaller hotels there are incredibly good value. So heading north and staying in Europe, we're kind of moving past Iceland, and we're recommending that people go to other parts of Scandinavia. Catherine, you know, again, what are you excited about that's coming up this year? So obviously the cities, you know, you can't get much cooler than a Scandinavian city, right? Stockholm, Oslo, Helsinki, they're all very cool and we've covered them. But this is the year, similar to Cuba, where we're telling people, you know, get out of the city. Because we have talked about how road trips are becoming more popular. Sorry, Mark, again, for the adventure. Road (laughs) trips are becoming more popular in Scandinavia. You know, it's getting out, experiencing the elements, driving from coast to coast. Now that shows, well, I guess movies like Frozen have sort of popularized Norway. I would also talk about Hugger because oh, yes. the phenomenon of Hugger, I never said this right, I'm sure, please, someone who's listening, please tell, I don't know. tell me the, I don't the know secret to way it. to pronounce it correctly. But Hugger. I am not familiar. Break it down for me. Hugger. Well, how would you define that, Catherine? A Danish concept of comfort, right? It's sort of, it's like Gemüchlichkeit in German. It's sort of cozy and homey and yeah. hand-knitted sweaters and mulled wine with your friends. That it, all sounds amazing. <laughs> it is. I mean, it is. It's, it's a Danish concept that is now sort of leaking out of Denmark. And it's irresistible because it's essentially cocooning, but with a Scandi shellac. So it feels a bit chicer than staying home in your kind of janky old PJ. Well, like Finland just launched this program, right? Fin Relax. Right. So their tourism board just launched Fin Relax, which is this program where they're telling people, yes, come to Finland, but you don't really have to do, do anything. anything. Like you can just come to Finland, you're going to have a great time, go, you know, to one of the 39 national parks, go foraging, go to a sauna, just like hang out, relax and enjoy yourself and don't feel like you need to See the pack and, everything yeah. into one trip. And I think it's also the cuisine, right? So it's not so much in these capital cities anymore. It's getting out in the countryside, you know. Marcus Samuelson has done a good job 
um, and obviously Renee Redzepi, you know, raising the profile of these Scandinavian chefs. Renee Redzepi loves to talk about seal fuckers. <laughs> that was his big, right? Sorry. <laughs> Somebody had to say it. Magnus. Came out of left field. Magnus Larson. Magnus. Or losing. Nielsen. Magnus Nielsen. Right. Favikin. Right. Yes. Concept of what we're talking about, getting out of the city, loving where you live, and experiencing those sort of off the beaten Slow travel, you know? Just relax. I love, I actually, there is something incredibly refreshing about a tourism board that recognizes that part of the joy of travel is the chance to unplug rather mm -hmm. than run around. It's our job when we travel to run around because we want to check things out for you guys. But if you're on vacation, how brilliant to say, you know what, just come to Finland because it's awesome to chill out. They also, Finland's tourism board is just killing it. They just oh, also the recently- The sign is one of my favorite had, things that I've seen in talk about a long the sign. time. At Helsinki airport, they had a sign saying, no one comes to Finland in the winter except you because you're a badass. <laughs> So, so get to Finland before the end of winter. Yeah, if you really want to, to feel it. good about yourself. And so, let's move out of Europe for a second because there are many other places on Earth. Um, Africa, I think we're expecting to be a big place, but not South Africa necessarily in our recommendations next year. Seb, where are we telling people to go? Yeah, I mean, I think South Africa is great, obviously, but it's been. It's been, you know, on the list for a while. Same as Botswana. These are all places with a lot of tourism infrastructure around safaris, Kenya, Tanzania as well. But I think the kind of newcomers for this list for us are two countries in particular, Zimbabwe and Rwanda, for somewhat similar but also very different reasons. So the obvious main attraction in Rwanda or what brings a lot of tourists are the mountain gorillas of Rwanda who are endangered at Volcano National Park. And this is actually important. Like people can participate in helping to make that better right. by going there. And right? and because a lot of kind of the new lodges or even the old lodges are reinventing themselves to be more, you know, intertwined with the conservation efforts and with the community. Um, one of those places is from Wilderness Safaris. They've just they're opening a new lodge called Bisate Lodge. It's opening in June of twenty seventeen. It's a beautiful place uh, that's kind of built into a section of a crater of one of the volcanoes right by Volcanoes National Park with views of, you know, two or three other volcanoes. But it was all kind of built with the sustainability in mind, with the community in mind. So the purchase of the site was it was bought from the community. So money went straight into the community. And then when you're there, not only are you, you know, within a short drive to the entrance to the national park to see the gorillas, but you're also, you know, seeing the vegetable garden that's like a works as a co-op and people from the community work in it and you can help out in the garden or you can um, learn about the biodiversity conservation efforts that they're doing like at the hotel and at the national park things but, like but that. So, can I ask you, I, would, I think we would all always defer to you about Africa having lived there and it's amazing to have your, your kind of first-hand experience of that. When I think about Rwanda I do worry, obviously it was the site of one of the worst genocides Horrible. of modern time, yeah. sort of, you know, Aleppo, Sarajevo, Rwanda. How comfortable, it's obviously not dangerous anymore because there isn't genocide going on, but the scar of that awful experience, do you think you would feel it visiting? I think you would, but I think they want to make sure you feel, like they want people there to remember it too. And I think the government of Rwanda has, it's a complicated issue. Paul Kagame has been the president since the end of the genocide. And when you're a president that long, there's obviously some issues with authoritarianism and things like that. But he's also done 
I mean, he's turned Kigali into what people call the Singapore of Africa. It's it's spick and span, completely clean. They banned plastic bags overnight. Do they um, have caning? They don't have caning <laughs> that I know of. There are reports of dissidents being told not to write what they were writing in the newspaper or things like that. But as a city, in terms of safety, it's one of the, if not the safest capital city in Africa. It's incredibly clean, incredibly physically beautiful because it's in this valley surrounded by mountains. But what I mean, so, so, so in other words, that's interesting. So what you're saying is, yes, you will feel the history of the genocide, but not in an uncomfortable, unmentionable way. No, I think it's... That they have embraced the fact that this is something terrible and we have to talk about it and... No, I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like apartheid in South Africa, but with, you know, like... There was this kind of whole reconciliation process where they brought in, you know, Hutus into the government so that both ethnic groups were equally represented. And, you know, there's museums everywhere in Kigali that talk about what happened at the, in the genocide. You can visit sites where it happened, where it's a constant reminder for the people who live there that, you know, this is not, if we forget it, we could repeat it, you know. So I, think I mean, that would, that's very reassuring because what would give me poor, I mean, Rwanda was always known as the Switzerland of Africa and it was this, you know, beautiful, stable, successful country. But what would give me pause is not worrying I were in danger, but sort of that discomfort of tramping over a graveyard. It's a bit like the killing fields in Cambodia. I, you know, that, that sense of how difficult I think that it's, is. But I think it's like a strolling through a graveyard instead. It's like a very, I think it's a sobering portrayal of it and they it's something that they're not ignoring because you can't ignore it, you know? And then the other one is Zimbabwe. One of the main things that's happened has been this huge new airport at Victoria Falls that's just opened. $150 million airport right at Victoria Falls. It's going to be able to handle one and a half million passengers a year, which is a big upgrade from like the landing strip that's there right now. When I went to Victoria Falls, I had to go from Botswana, like on a bus across the border into Zimbabwe. Now you can fly in internationally because it's gonna, it's a, it's an airport that can handle large commercial jets and stuff. So that's gonna change things completely for Victoria but, Falls. But how does Zimbabwe fall, or where does Zimbabwe fall in our, should we go there because of insert troubling something? How much is our tourism to Zimbabwe, which is very important. We know that tourism can change the world. And the more you're exposed to the outside world, the more open and more collaborative we become. But obviously, Zimbabwe is is run by an oppressive dictator who seems immune to death. Mm-hmm. How, how do you reconcile that? I mean, I think it's that you can't let the people suffer because they have a, I think, probably psychotic despot in charge. I'm not going to be allowed back in that country. Um, but uh, You're I, on the list now. <laughs> I've been a few times, and the first time I went was in 2008, which is when things were really bad. It was like in the middle of a power struggle. The economy had completely tanked. There were, you know, inflation to the point where a stick of gum officially cost $5 billion Zimbabwean dollars or something. So they had canceled their own currency. They were just using U.S. dollars. And the gratitude that I saw from people for like just sitting down and ordering a meal at a restaurant or like, you know, taking a taxi because they just had zero tourism and, you know, the economy was completely tanked. I think especially because so much of the economy exists in the informal economy by like participating, you're helping the people on the ground. And then if some of that money trickles up to this corrupt person who's going to be president of Zimbabwe for the next 200 years, (laughs) then like so be it. And I think there's Zimbabwe is in a place right now where it's that groundswell has reached a critical mass where despite and in spite of this tyranny 
it's really moving forward. Don't you feel like it also, in, in many of these countries, it provides a bulwark against less palatable and less beneficial economic modes that the countries could go down. So if they can develop a tourism economy, they don't have to, for example, let the Chinese come and drill for oil or the Americans come and drill for oil for that matter. And I think that... I do, but don't you think... I mean, I do think that Mugabe is the closest thing we have to a living Bond villain. And it is one of the countries that I worry... And I think, Sebastian, you're totally right. that You don't punish regular people for that. The dictator who's hijacked their country. But he is someone that I would quite proactively like to oust him proactively from oppressing his country the way he has for what feels like 400 years. But it is an interesting question, and this is not on... We're off the list kind of entirely with this, but if you think about... Number one, if you think about... Well, this is controversial, but if you think about the United States and other countries have already started to talk about, you know, the next period of time in our history and what that's going to look like. And people are looking at that, but also think about Russia right now. And we have this notion that we've been talking about where in the coming year, we're expecting that Americans who are traveling, who are most of our audience, are going to be ambassadors, right, to the world. The world is going to be asking a lot of questions. And if you think about the idea of travel as a border crossing and as a bridge building activity of one kind or another, then you think about these places where people may have imperfect sources of information about other parts of the world. And you can be, if you are doing what Sebastian is suggesting and being a kind of ambassador on the ground as well as an economic engine, you might be able to at least mitigate in a small way, a small individualistic way, that barrier of information that we're all going to be facing. And there's also the, you know, Luis, this is like a whole other podcast, which we had. We talked about this, right? Ethical travel. But I think for Zimbabwe's case in particular, there's also the argument that through tourism, you're also supporting other initiatives and things that wouldn't be there necessarily, like conservation, for example, in the safari parks. The incentive for conservation increases when you have beautiful safari lodges that people are going to regularly and they're expecting to see animals and things like that. So and you're absolutely right. I mean, I think I think the thing is, the big concern is just making sure that the money trickles down, which I think, Sebastian, you and I had a very spirited debate about. If anyone hasn't listened to that, you can hear us come to verbal blows. Um, <laughs> was that the one where I said, let me finish? <laughs> yes, yes. It was very polite. It was very polite. But... Clipped. No, no, but but I but I think but I think that the challenge, and that's what I'm always asking, is you want to help the everyday people. You want to make sure that the powers that be are not skimming it off to get gold-plated taps in yeah. every bathroom in their house. But that's you know I do think, and I think Brad, you're making an amazing point. You know when you do travel, you are an ambassador. I have a friend who went to Iran. I've talked about this on the podcast before, and he was dazzled by how fascinated people in Tehran just wanted to talk to him and say, what Americans hear about us? Here's what we hear about you. And that's amazing. I had the same experience in Venezuela, where officially I'm from the, you know, the evil empire. And it was a similar experience where it was more just interest and like, how much of this is true, really? And like, you seem fine. Let's have a beer and talk, you know? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of that in the coming year. But since you migrated us over to South America, Mark, we were talking before the podcast started about Buenos Aires and about some of the changes that are coming there in the, in, in the next year. Buenos Aires is one of my, has been long time on my list of places I just must go to, and I feel very ashamed I haven't yet been. And I, f- I am shocked that you haven't been there. I, I know, I feel, I feel slightly embarrassed. You... I'm getting judged by everyone here. <laughs> it's well, because, outdoors because a you're city. a legend. If you weren't oh, a legend, we wouldn't be you're judging hired. you. No, no, but, you know, I spent a lot of my childhood in Italy, and 
I've always been fascinated by the fusion of Itali the sort of Italification of South America for many reasons that Buenos Aires embodies. And I want to get the feeling of that and how I'm fascinated by how every South American I know says, oh, people from Buenos Aires, they just was, look. As a Colombian, I was about to make a comment along those lines. <laughs> yeah. They just look down on the, the rest Italian of them. Thing is like, yes, yeah. every other, every other uh, Latin American, Spanish American, like South American friend I've ever had looks down on them. Yeah. Well, because or fights with them. Yes, fights they with sort them. Of, they have this. So I'm fascinated to see how well deserved that reputation for being everyone's enemy they are. Or look, everyone's irritating enemy. I mean, it feels weirdly European. Yeah. Like, it really does. You In what way, Meredith? Like, what? So say you're in Quito, in Ecuador, and you're walking around and you feel like you're in South America. Like, that picture you have in your mind of South America, that is what Quito is like. When you're walking around in Buenos Aires, you could be in Madrid. It is organized in a way that lends it to like great walking tours, which is not something that you can find in a lot of more traditional South American major cities. Usually we'll need a car or something. But I just found that when I was there, I felt, I mean, I could have been in Europe. What was your favorite thing you did there? Oh my gosh, I dream about this falafel place, which is like the again, why would you falafel? ever think that I was you would get the steak in the wine? <laughs> no, no, there one. is a place called El Banco Rojo that's in San Telmo, and it's like this tiny hole in the wall, and it is some of the best falafel I've ever had. But again, it's down. just like it, you find all of these things that you never would have expected finding in Argentina or in South America as a whole, and they're lovely and they so perfectly complement the South American-ness of Argentina we as just, well. We just published an article looking at Buenos Aires' new culinary scene, so check that out. I like, will, I didn't go, see yeah. that story. But I, I'm also interested, you know, Art Basel has nominated Buenos Aires as it's the first of its Art right. Basel cities, which is the equivalent of a pop-up restaurant, but for culture. And I'm interested to see how that intersects. Faena, which of course has kind of made a big splash in Miami, Finer transformed a whole, finer hotel and universe transformed a whole corner of Buenos Aires. And I just, I feel a little bit ashamed that I've not been. So I'm half excited and I half don't really want to admit I haven't been because I'm getting looks from everyone I know that are similar to all of the team here at Traveller who are looking at me slightly disgusted that I haven't managed it yet. <laughs> it's definitely high on my list, but I'm with Seb. I'm, I, like, I think the meat culture, like which is a terrible thing to say in a way, but oh in that part of South America, it's true in Brazil as well it's slightly different but it's it's very similar you know we do a great job with barbecue we've got some great barbecue in, in american city it's different there it's and yeah. the meat and is it, so good and it's just such a good part i mean it's such an integral part of the culture that it's like it's not like you're going out for a steak dinner it's like you're getting a delicious steak and a delicious glass of red wine for like six bucks well i remember being you know? in in the southern half of brazil you get some of the same culture and you're driving down the highway and instead of there being a mcdonald's or a zabaro on the side <laughs> There's a churrascaria, mm -hmm. which has got that meat that they do, and it's unbelievably good. It's like the best meat I've ever eaten yeah. in my life. Well, so I just want to, anyone listening, if anyone's got any recommendations, please tweet them at me. I'm going for the week of Easter. I'm going to Buenos Aires and Mendoza. Please help me plan my trip. We will group plan it. These guys are going to give me some <laughs> suggestions. I'm thrilled. If anyone else has suggestions, I'm all yours. And then, but, and then you should go, listener, in 2017. Exactly. I'll put a plug in for Lima, too, because I think Lima 
Lima is an emerging uh, Especially food, food city for so food. So many Michelin stars. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. It. So it's ridiculous. Many. But that's not on our list. It's not on the official list. <laughs> Buenos Aires Just is. Just sneak it in if you can. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Okay, so uh, with that, I think... We skipped uh, Asia. We skipped Asia? Do we, we want to talk about... Let's talk about Asia. The craziness of this list is we have 17 places to go in 2017, yeah. and the list is up online right now, and I think that we could have had 47 places to go in 2017 because I think everyone on staff was so excited about all of these but 17 places. and 17. It sounds it much sounds better. Worse. The truth is that people can't go everywhere, so I feel like... Some travel publications just kind of throw <laughs> all the places on earth into their list. <laughs> we've decided not to do that. We've decided to actually choose. We've, we've, we've curated the world. But for Asia, I think bit. we had Tokyo, Kyoto. Both and and, and the reason why I think is interesting, there's a there's a new train there that's going to make those easier to do together and faster to and do together. And according to you, our beloved reader, they're the first and third best cities yes. in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. The RCAs, yes. and we we talked about Catherine, who spent time in Japan as a child. We've seen that there are better routes into Haneda, which is the much more convenient airport for Tokyo. So actually, one of the rigmaroles for getting to Tokyo was that Narita is essentially sort of in a, in a different city. Yeah. And Haneda is like LaGuardia is to New York or Midway is to Chicago. It's so convenient. And I that think, I think comparing anything to LaGuardia in a positive light. Bad, I mean, bad, bad well news. Done. Well, I mean, <laughs> no. didn't you see that? I thought that was very fast. Yeah. Um, but it does after that. Do you have to walk on the highway? <laughs> after that long flight from the US, even from the West Coast, it's a long way. You know, the two hours it took to get in from Narita was a little soul crushing, whereas the 20 minutes on the equivalent of the subway from Haneda gets you to that hotel room where you just want to crash. I mean, that's personally that that's on top of my list for 2017. As someone who spent most of my life in Asia and hasn't been to Japan, it's number one for me. So I'm, I'm going in 2017 if I can pull it off. I, this, I get to the same place. Like I want that to be on my list for 2017 as well because I've never been and because I want to eat there. <laughs> exactly. Right. I would also say, what I would say about Tokyo, which I think gets overlooked, is as a family destination, it's very viable because it is manageable. It is safe. The public transportation is fantastic. The food is different but fun. Mm -hmm. It is bright lights, big activities, plenty of open parks. And I think it's easy to assume somewhere like Tokyo is just overwhelming overwhelming, and late night bars and hostess bars mm -hmm. and Akihabara's, you know, crazy electronics. And I would go with a kid of sort of nine or ten. I think it would be a brain feast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's good for me. The other place we're recommending people go is New Zealand. And again, I think Australia was high on our list last year, so we're still in that same territory. I think new air routes are opening up there. United American Air New Zealand, which is um, our editor Aaron Florio's favorite airline of all time. Uh, and according to her, the best airline in the world, they have new according routes. According to a lot of people. According to, according to a lot of people. Don't okay. forget also, if you're looking to go to London from L.A., Air New Zealand flies to London from L.A. And it has in economy the Sky Couch, which you can buy three seats and turn them essentially into kind of a snuggle pod for the long haul. So you don't just have to go to New Zealand. You can fly on Air New Zealand to London. And I think Mark, I'm with Aaron on this. Mark, what? keep a G on the podcast. <laughs> 
No, I'm thinking if you've got a kid, it's a great book. It is G. It's, <laughs> it is. It's like, you. no, it is. Exactly. It's for like families. It's, and, it's a and family thing. But I also think that Air New Zealand out. is a, it's just a great, it's one of those unheralded amazing airlines that. It just you, doesn't have that many routes. So I don't think it has, it has like the same cachet as Emirates or Singapore or something. It's just a smaller airline, but I think it's consistently ranked. And Erin would like Air New Zealand because she's a Kiwi. She's a Kiwi. She's from there. And the other things she's loving are the... Well, she's loving everything. It's her home country. But she's she's calling out the Northland. There's a new Helena Bay resort that's opening up there that she's pretty excited about. Um, I'm sure she'll try to find a way to go and visit (laughs) if she possibly can. And then the Auckland Auckland food scene, which is something that she's pretty excited about and she's a big champion of. Al Brown is somebody that she's a fan of and he's got a new restaurant called Depot. And the wine country is up and coming there as well. So... um, New Zealand. So all of New Zealand all is worth New Zealand. The visit. Just do the whole thing. Well, <laughs> no, I'm no. That wasn't a, I, that wasn't a dig. That was like a totally legitimate. Like, it and is. you can go. You can bungee jump. I bungee jumped the one and only time. You in hate Queenstown. the outdoors, but you bungee jump. <laughs> I do everything for research. You do everything once. You won't know if you try he everything paid once. to do it. <laughs> because, okay. No, you try. You should never lock off an experience you haven't had at least once, because then you're being ill-educated and ignorant. You can say you don't like something so if you try. So go to Portugal, it. everyone. So, <laughs> no, no, but I bungee jumped can in you Queenstown. Bungee jump in, Portugal? in Queenstown, was... which is where bungee jumping was invented, because New Zealand's liability laws are low, so they can try extreme sports without worrying about people suing. And it was incredible to do it in the place that bungee jumping was invented. I just was so calm because I told myself there was no danger that it wasn't fun because the adrenaline (laughs) is what turns it into fun. But I think the larger point is it's a place where you can have both a great urban experience. It's it's sort of like South Africa. You can have a great urban experience. You can do wine country. You can have a really outdoorsy experience. And a beachy experience. You can have a beachy experience. All in one dream. Yeah, all in one trip. trip. And and you're going to want to do it all in one trip because it's a long way over this far. Exactly. It's a long way. And then the last place that we haven't really talked about at all today, but I'll throw it out there, is Jerusalem, where, you know, there's a thriving food scene, a thriving food scene, some of the best vegetarian food on the planet and a lot of other sort of really experimental things going on there. And then obviously always a lively art scene. I think Tel Aviv, you know, gets a lot of credit and attention. And I think Lilith, who um, is not on the podcast today, but is a regular, is kind of a big champion of going to Jerusalem, not just for the religious sites and the monuments, but going and actually embracing everything else that they have going on there. Exactly. And not as like a And the food is very different. I mean, culturally, it has very different influences from Tel Aviv. So you're getting... In a tight for Israel for a tiny country has fascinating diversity. So you're not just getting less mid-century modern, less beachy Tel Aviv. You're getting a very different city. Right. Yeah. So check all of those out on the website. The post is up. The places to go in 2017. We are at CN Traveler on Instagram and on Snapchat and on Twitter. And we are Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and on YouTube. CNTraveler.com is where you can find all of this and more. And why don't we tell people where to find you guys? Uh, Meredith, where can the folk find you? I am on Twitter at Oh Hey There Mayor. I'm on Twitter at Mark J. Elwood. Mark with a K, Elwood with two L's. And I'm at Seb Modak on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm at Brad Rick. Happy holidays, everyone, whichever one it is. And have a great weekend. Bye.